You found us through fly fishing. You'll stay for our passion and the community. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. Yeah, but he doesn't get it. How come fly fishermen don't get it? You only haul with the short power snap. Look for where people walk and the insides of bends and, and hunt those. The roof blew off and the interior walls got sucked out. And the trees are just coming up. And I mean, he's clearly not going to clear the trees. It is not a fly fishing story. It's a story about me trying to understand my brother through fly fishing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Today's episode is sponsored by Togan's Fly Shop, who provides superior quality products at an affordable price. An amazing resource for fly tying materials, tools, and fishing accessories. Since 2005, Togans has been over-delivering on price, service, and passion. And now, you can check out that Togans buzz for yourself. Right now, you can head over to wetflyswing.com slash Togans to get started. That's T-O-G-E-N-S. You support this podcast by clicking through that link to Togans online. Bear Vault has the perfect solution to keep your provisions secure while heading into the backcountry this season. Bear Vault builds a rugged polycarbonate locking canister that keeps bears and other wild animals away from your food. Proper food storage is one key to an epic trip in the backcountry. Please head over to wetflyswing.com slash bear vault to check out this must-have solution for the outdoors now. You support this podcast and your safety this season by clicking through that link right now. We've been waiting for you. Follow our guests, follow us on Instagram, and share this episode and the love if you enjoy this podcast. And we are live in three, two, one. How you doing, Dick? I am doing just fine. Nice, nice. Thanks for uh, finally putting this one together. This is another uh, one that's been a while. I've been thinking about you over the years because we have a connection uh, to my dad's shop back in the day, and uh, and I've been I've run into you still at shows. You're still going strong out there working with uh, you know a bunch of different brands. I believe we're going to talk about that today. TFO is one of those, which is a uh, you know obviously a big brand out there. So before we get into all that with everything we, you have going, uh, let's take it back right to fly fishing. What's your first memory in fly fishing? Well, let's see. My first memory in fly fishing is probably watching uh, TV shows, American Sportsman way back then. There used to be a show that your dad will probably remember. He may have seen it called Gad About Gaddis. And this guy used to, uh, he had a private plane and he flew all over the country. And one of the things that stuck into my mind was that he flew out and fish the Deschutes. Hmm. And I can still see that in my mind's eye. How do you spell that? How do you spell that show? Yeah, Gadabout Gaddis. Like Gad? Is that like a G? What's the, I'm trying to, Gad, like G? Yeah, G-A, like a Gadabout as a person, I think, who travels here and there. Okay. I think it was Gadabout Gaddis. Uh, not Caddis, but Gadabout Gaddis, I think. Oh, yeah, there it is. Gadabout, yeah, yeah, Gadabout Gaddis. Here it is right here. Yeah, I got it. He's a, um, all right, cool. Was a 20th century American fisherman and television pioneer. There, wow, I've never, see, Dick, this is why I love this show, because you just brought up something that nobody in, in six years has mentioned. This is amazing. So keep going. Oh, well, you know, we watched that show, and, uh, you know, sports afield and outdoor life were 
big publications, uh, Joe Brooks, uh, I mean, uh, those of us of that vintage, I'm sure including your dad, will never forget reading articles by Joe. And uh, my brother actually got to know and fish with Joe and his wife, Mary. He was a real aficionado of the Spring Creeks there in Livingston, Montana, and the Yellowstone. In fact, he died. Uh, he had his, uh, the big one, he had a heart attack while fishing on the Yellowstone. Oh, wow. And yeah, they flew him back to Mayo, as I recall, and he didn't make it. Uh, you know, he was alive for some time, and he's buried in the um, uh, grave uh, site right uh, close to the Yellowstone in Livingston, Montana, south of Livingston. That's where his grave is. Yeah, amazing. Amazing. Yeah, that's Joe. Well, we did an episode on Joe Brooks. His um, his nephew, or I think it was his nephew, wrote a book about him and told the whole life story, which was very, very entertaining because and some pretty serious stuff because he battled with a lot of things in his life. Yeah, alcohol and uh, Lefty. Uh, one of the blessings with knowing Lefty and having him as a friend is Lefty minced no words. I mean, he was very, very honest in a way that was very accepting. So Lefty would go out to Joe and just be like, hey, Joe, you're drinking too much. You need to stop that sort of thing. Uh, not so much that, because I don't know how much of the story you've heard, but uh, Joe hired Lefty to take him out fishing uh, on the Potomac, or I can't exactly yeah. remember where. And uh, he saw Joe fly casting, and it intrigued him so much so that I think he or Joe maybe took him down to Totterman's or something. It's uh, still around a uh, classic uh, sporting goods store in uh, Baltimore, I believe, and bought him his first, or he bought his first outfit, uh, fly outfit, and that's where it all started. And so Joe was really a mentor uh, oh. to Lefty. That's how Lefty got into fly fishing. And then, of course, um, you know, he told me the story about how it was actually Mary. Uh, his wife, Mary, uh, who <laughs> told him, you're either going to stop drinking or that's it. And he stopped. So maybe you've heard that story, which is really kind of cool. Yeah. Well, I heard the, yeah, I heard all that story and the fact that he, it got so bad. He was literally living on the streets for a period of time. Exactly. And it was hard to imagine because the way he presented himself in writing and in person was as a culture gentleman. You know, I mean, really? Yeah. And you said, you know, I guess he was in the, he was in, in the insurance industry uh, <laughs> at one time, and maybe that's where he, uh, his problem developed. So. Yeah, gotcha. Okay, good. So, so this is awesome. This is already starting out great because I know you're a wealth of knowledge here, not only with the stories and history, but the, the background and you got this connection to me and my dad, which is awesome too. So, Let's, um, so you got all this going. So you get started, uh, you've got your whole journey in fly fishing. When does, when do you know this is going to be kind of your thing? Like you're repping these brands. When did all that come to be? No, I don't know. Well, a little bit of my background. I have, uh, <laughs> like a lot of people have lived a while. You know, I started off moving to Portland. I don't know how much of my history you want to find out. But yeah, let's hear it. Yeah. Tell as much as you want to tell. Yeah. Okay, well, I'll try to keep it brief. I grew up in upstate New York, in Buffalo, New York, and uh, it's pretty humorous. And that was before the steelhead and salmon fishery went downhill. Oh, wow. I missed all that. I moved away 
when that was just just uh, starting to improve. So you grew up with in New York. There were steelhead in like good steelhead fishing then in Lake Erie. No, there was not. That's what I'm saying. There was not that I left before that all took off. In fact, I went to school in Cleveland, Ohio. That's where I graduated from college. And I was there when the Cuyahoga River had so much oil on it, it caught on fire. Oh, wow. What college did you go to? I went to a a small Methodist school called Baldwin Wallace College. And uh, I actually uh, met an attorney here in Portland, Norm Sepinuk who actually, when he pressed me about where I went to school, he goes, you went to Baldwin-Wallace? And I looked at him and I go, well, there's a zillion uh, small colleges in Ohio and all over the place. And he goes, that's where Harrison Dillard went to school. And Harrison Dillard was a world-class track and field Mm. athlete. And, you know, he, and he knew Norm Sepinuk knew about that. He was a local attorney here. So, uh, but that's, that's going way back. So, you know, I grew up in uh, upstate New York and, uh, you know, he, as you know, I'm Japanese American, you know, I'm an, uh, I'm Asian and uh, I was thinking about that recently and I'm still laughing about it because we started fishing. Uh, I grew up in, and everyone in my family including my grandparents, fished everyone. So it's genetic. Mom, my sister, my brother, my dad. And so my dad used to take us down to the little meadow streams in what we call the southern tier south of Buffalo. And, oh, that's how I got started in trout fishing. And, uh, again, it was, you know, conventional fishing. But, interestingly enough, very early on, we used both spinning and fly rods. But... My dad set us up with fly rods, fishing with worms and with uh, uh, minnows, live minnows. <laughs> we used to fish with live minnows on those little streams. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the trout season still opens in uh, New York State on April Fool's, April 1st. <laughs> uh, we used to get so excited as kids, my brother and I, and, you know, to an extent, my sister. And, uh, you know, we used to, I mean, I have so many happy memories about that that'll take me to my grave. But that's how we, we started off fishing and we went up to Canada and fished for smallmouth but using that fly rod really intrigued me and early on my father my dear father uh, he made it a point to always take long vacations during the summer as long as he could get time off work and we have I think we still have the eight millimeter films of him fly fishing on the Madison River in Yellowstone Park. Oh, so you'd go on a road trip across the country to, would you take a road trip? Uh, yes, because in fact, those road trips were legendary. Uh, and that's what led me into uh, fly fishing, actually, because my family is from the um, South Puget Sound. They grew up on farms in the uh, Tacoma, Auburn, Kent area, and uh, the war displaced them. And my parents ended up uh, moving from the West Coast back to Buffalo, where I grew up. And so what happened is my father would always take us on long vacations. And they were oriented around two things, visiting relatives. Well, three things, seeing new sites, which I think my mother forced that because I've traveled a lot of areas with the uh, with my family growing up. 
uh, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick. We went out there one summer, Maine. So we, we traveled all over during the summer, but um, it would always focus on family, you know, vacation scenes, sites, Black Hills, whatever, as we traveled. Right. How long would you guys go for? Like, it was a long, what was a long trip? Yeah, at least two weeks. But everyone laughs at this. My father uh, worked for a large Buick dealership for many, many years, and he ended up running their um, service department. And <laughs> he, oh, finagled nice. a, he finagled a way to uh, Dave to actually get a month off of vacation, a month of vacation. And we used to laugh about that. We say, yeah, you probably are so intolerable that they say, yeah, Tack can leave for a month and we're okay with that. Uh, <laughs> so he'd go for a month and would he also find a way to take one of the company cars, the Buick out there on the road trip? Oh, uh, we always drove Buicks. We always drove big old Buicks and nice Buicks. And, you know, those things are like sitting in your couch. What was a Buick? Give us the picture of like, what year was that Buick? Like if we went to search it online, oh. what would it be called? Like a 19? Uh, Electra, I think was a 19, let's just say 62, 63. We had a blue, Robin's Egg blue Electra Buick. I, my brother may remember the year, convertible. Wow. Convertible. With push button windows. No way. Automatic windows? Oh, yeah. Yeah, when we took people, uh, friends on rides, uh, or you know, to you know, I was was athletic, so we played a lot of team sports, and uh, the <laughs> my friends would go, "You've got power windows." Yeah. <laughs> so my dad uh, took very good care of us, and that's a whole separate story because you know they they grew up poor. I mean, literally, very poor. Wow, that's amazing. So your parents. So your parents grew up poor. They had the wartime stuff that went on and, and they were turned. Yeah. They were in camps. Yeah, exactly. This is, you know, I, I love, again, the podcast is so amazing because I, first of all, I've known you for a long time, never heard these stories, but I mean, you know, it's, we hear a lot of these stories about the American story, you know, I mean, and, and I've been watching a lot of documentaries on the history of the United States. I'm just watching the civil war right now. And, uh, you know, and it's a story about, we've always had battle, you know, there's always been issues. But, you know, the, the thing that comes up is the diversity of this country, right? What makes it so amazing. You know what I mean? I didn't even know you were Japanese-American. I had no idea. But it doesn't really matter. The point is, is that you found a place, right? And your family did. And your dad did what he did for you guys. Well, it even gets more fascinating than that. We can get into that maybe later. My dad uh, was uh, recruited to uh, train as a sumo wrestler in Japan <laughs> as wow. a youngster. Holy cow fascinating story but back to my we'll can't try to stay on course here yeah let's keep it on track what happened is that we take these long vacations and number three number one priority probably in my dad's eye was fishing <laughs> number three or four was fishing what was it no 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 remember it was family seeing new sites and Priority number three was fishing. But okay. if you really would have pulled my dad aside, and we could tell fishing and family were the top priority. In fact, uh, my mother forced him and my brother. My sister wasn't with him on this trip. You'll laugh at this. Yeah. But my mother forced us to stop in Portland to go into the newly opened Lloyd Center. Oh, wow. And I'll never forget it. I'm a curious sort, as you may gather. So I, I foxtrotted in there with my mom. I said, yeah, I want to see this. My brother and my father sat out in the car sulking. 
thinking, <laughs> listen, we want to go up to Seattle to visit relatives or go fishing. Why in the world are we stopping in Portland to see a shopping center? But so that's that's kind of the the version of uh, you know how I got into fishing and both conventional and fly fishing. But uh, you know it was just a natural evolution to uh, to pick up fly fishing, you know, and then get into rod building and fly tying, and you know, yeah, we all get sucked into that. Oh yeah. So talk about your professional career in fly fishing and, and just fishing in general. When did that begin? How did that start? Well, I, uh, my former life, uh, I taught for five and a half years out in here in Portland. And then I went to work in the commercial insurance industry here in Portland in Beaverton, Oregon. And then I um, got that knock on the, uh, well, I was asked to go into the manager's office one day and I kind of, I'm, you, as <laughs> I'm rather irreverent and I'm a joker. And I looked around to the guy, uh, in the cubicle next to me and I said, gee, many willikers, I haven't done anything that bad in a while. When am I in trouble for now? And they said, yeah, the manager wants to see you in his office. So I go into his office. He closes, he says, uh, close the door. And I go, uh-oh, this can't be good. <laughs> and he goes, I'm going to have to ask you to consider moving to Salt Lake City. Oh, wow. And I went, what? And this is like in just before Christmas. So uh, I went home, and uh, we were having problems with a small office down in Salt Lake. And so went home kind of, to be candid, um, I was not used to moving around a lot. My wife was. Um, they moved as a family a lot. I didn't. So I kind of went home half resigned and talked to her. I said, well, it's a promotion, yada, yada, yada. And she said, I think that's cool. And she said, I think we ought to look into this. So we jumped on a plane, went down to Salt Lake. And, you know, as you know, we took that job, moved from Salt Lake, then moved to, um, it was offered a, a bigger job down in Dallas, Texas. Moved down to Dallas, and that wasn't a real good fit. My son was very young then. And I felt like I was in the military, you know, I was mm. moving all the time. Right. You know, you're kind of the advancement pathway. And then what happened is that, um, I was recruited by a guy that I work with here in Portland to move to Minneapolis. And so I moved to Minneapolis, um, you know, and it was tough. You know, I was loyal to the company I was with and moved to Minneapolis, spent 10 years there. And then they wanted me to move to Charleston, West Virginia to run a program there. And I was ready to do that. And Again, my good wife, uh, and we've been married a long, long time. She looked at me and said, you know, I've heard you complain about missing Portland for all these years. Why don't we take a jump off the bridge and move back? No job, <laughs> not at all. So we moved back to Portland in uh, 99. So, oh, wow. So I've, I've lived here in 30 some years because I moved here in 71, moved away in like 85 and then came back permanently in 99. So, you know, I came back here to Portland and dinked around for a little over a year in the insurance industry. And I got some good advice from um, a lead that one of my friends gave me. I talked to one of the managers. I was actually an executive in the insurance industry for a period of time. And he looked at my resume and he goes, Dick, 
He said, you're seriously overqualified. He said, you've been in big markets. Uh, you ought to have my job hmm. and, uh, or the job above me. Right. And, uh, and that was a good thing because basically what he was saying is you're not going to find a job uh, that you left in Minneapolis or Dallas. He says, that's not going to happen. So I sat around there and thought about it. And I said, hmm, I know they say, don't follow your passion. <laughs> yeah. But I did and started my rep business. So I've been at it for 20 some years, 23, 24, 25. I've kind of lost track of it. Right. Yeah, no, that's it. And how does, when you what is that first step to starting that? Because maybe that'll, that'll segue into the companies you work for or you have worked with over the years. Yeah, well, yeah. what I did is I'm, I'm fairly analytical. And so at that time, we had a buyer's guide um, to the fly fishing industry that went away that showed all the manufacturers. And uh, so I just picked that up. It's like having the yellow pages and just started calling around and talking to various companies. You know, I had a very, I'm very um, equipment oriented. I always have been. I always like to fiddle around with equipment, test new products, and I still have that passion. And uh, so I looked around and one of my first contacts, and I, I snuck my way into the trade show my first trade show 20 some years ago which one was that uh, it was called the it's still going the iftd oh international yeah. fly tackle dealer show and it was in uh at that time it was in salt lake then it went over to denver and it's kind of bounced all over the place as you probably know but i got into there and actually the first company i established a contact with and i was just you know, trolling the, the floor there looking for manufacturers was Angler Sport Group. Oh, yeah. Uh, Angler Sport Group, uh, we struck up a conversation and they said, yeah, you know, uh, I won't tell you who their rep was at that time, but they said, yeah, why don't you uh, help us promote this little line we've got from uh, Japan, Switzerland, Marriott, uh, which is still around. It's gone through a lot of changes. Why don't you help us promote Marriott out in the Northwest and we'll see how you do. Hmm. Well, you know, I didn't do very well. I mean, I tried very hard, but it was hard to gain traction with a new, a brand that was, had no brand uh, acknowledgement how, out here in the Northwest, except among a few anglers. Right. Because Marriott was a, was a nice, really a kind of upper end reel, right? Exactly. And uh, there's a whole history. It's actually a joint venture between the Swiss and the Japanese, but that's a story in and of itself. And they had their, their U.S. distributor was located up in Seattle. And, you know, I kind of work with him. I can even remember the first event I went to, I invited myself or I was invited to the Clark Scamania. They used to do, and probably, I think they still do, they do a beginning fly fishing course in the spring. So they said, yeah, bring your rods out here, you know, and reels, and we can, you know, have people use them. So that's really kind of how I got started. And then uh, <laughs> Anger Sport Group came back and said, well, we'd like you to be our rep. We're not real happy with our current rep. So uh, I slid in there. The other contact early, early on was with Rick Pope. Oh, okay. And uh, I just called Rick out of the blue because I was looking for a waiter line. And uh, Rick may not remember this. I think he's been on your podcast. He has. Yeah. Well, Rick Rick would laugh because he's, he's like myself. He has, 
has a very good memory. And he'll probably remember this if he were to listen to this. But um, we got into this long discussion about waiters and all sorts of equipment. And it, it, Rick is just so cordial, so nice. Everyone loves Rick Pope. Yeah. I mean, if you don't like Rick Pope, something's wrong with you. Yeah. I mean, really. And uh, so Rick and I had this long, this, more than one discussion, but I think the first one went on forever. And then, as you know, he finally, uh, after a few discussions, said, how would you like to represent Springbrook? Hmm. And I go, Springbrook, what, what is Springbrook? Yeah. <laughs> in fact, I think it was in the buyer's guide. It was at that time really a distributor of uh, all sorts of products, uh, many of which you'll know. We at one time carried Dinsmore. We carried all sorts of products. To, I mean, that we were a distributor, really. That's what Springbrook was. And the quick and funny little story is he said, yeah, we got a few of these fly rods too that uh, are located a high, a very competent manufacturer in Korea. And they were all two-piece rods. They're all very, very basic. But all your listeners, if it doesn't get edited out, should hear this. I took those darn fly rods around. In fact, I've got one guy, Richard Embry, still <laughs> up in Seattle. And uh, Richard's uh, a competitive caster and great caster and a uh, very uh, talkative, friendly guy. Richard and I still stay in communication once in a while and uh, keep up on each other. And he'll, he'll still remember those first uh, TFO rods I got to him. And those things cast, they were just wonderful rods. They had very inexpensive reel seats on them. You know, those Fuji graphite reel seats oh, yeah. going back. And so I took them into dealers and um, I'll never forget. I had a bunch of the dealer, uh, the owners, two of the owners of the company, and there may have been other guys from the shop that are casting their rods. And uh, he said, gosh, she's really cast nicely. So, you know, I kind of mentally took out my pad and thinking, ah, I'm going to write my first order. And he says, no, I think, well, we'll hold off on this. I went, scratch my head and go, they love the rods. And uh, the sum and substance of this is, and I've encountered this, uh, one guy was so honest as to tell me about one of the two-piece models a few years later at the show. It was an eight-and-a-half-foot four-weight. Uh, we cast it together at the show, and he looked at me, and he says, Dick, this rod's never going in the shop. And I go, what do you mean? He said, it's too good. Ah. Uh, truthfully, he said, this rod is too nice. It's too inexpensive. It will really, really compete with some of my higher-end rods. And he says, I, I put this rod in the hand of a guy who's casting X, Y, Z rod, and they're going to say, that rod's what? Less right. than 100 bucks? Uh, maybe I'll take that rod, you know. But that's kind of what you struggle with, with unknown brands. I'm dealing that with that with my waiter. So that's part of the thing, in the, and that's interesting because we've talked about that a lot over the years, just the rods, how – Especially now, when you're talking about back a while back, but even nowadays, rods are so good, it's hard to find a bad rod because, is that, I mean, do you think that's that was the case 20 years ago? Uh, yes, uh, maybe a little less so, but there are, you're exactly right. It is difficult to find a poorly performing rod. I tried one just the other day, and I'm not going to name the brand, but I was was kind of astounded. I said, wow, it was a Euro rod. And I went, woo. I said, uh, you know, 
I mean, you always do a comparison. And I said, wow, uh, Jason Randall, who's developed oh, yeah. our, our stealth rods. I said, wow, man, these stealth rods just are um, a big difference. But, you know, the other thing that uh, I should mention, too, and maybe now is not the time uh, to mention it, but, you know, there's a lot of skepticism, too. Uh, and some of it is just, uh, I guess I'd call idle gossip that happens within any industry. I've heard so many times, and I want to dispel this, Lefty Cray had nothing to do with the design of the TFO rods. That is blatantly untrue. That's unequivocally untrue. I mean, I hear that. I hear murmurs about that still to this day coming from consumers that have talked right. to shop owners that yeah. go, yeah, you know, Lefty's name is on the shaft, but he didn't have anything to do with that. Just to clarify, so you're saying that Lefty had nothing to do with the design of the Lefty Cray series of rods? No, that I'm, what I'm saying is that our competitors have said that Lefty had nothing to do with the design of the rods. That is blatantly untrue. Oh, so he did. He definitely had. He definitely. Oh, I mean that. That's what I'm telling you. Yeah, and I'm glad you said that because we had. Well, we've had Rick Pope on and Ed Javaroski, and we, of course, didn't have Lefty Cray. I was a little. I'm. You know, I was a little bit uh, late on that thing in the podcast, but I've heard all the stories. And I mean, yeah, I mean, Rick Pope basically put together this all-star crew of amazing people, and I'm just guessing how does that guy do that because his personality. He's probably the type of guy that could just bring you know these people together, and they wanted to work for him. Is that? Is that what it was with Rick Pope? He's just that type of guy that Lefty and, and Ed and all these big time people wanted to just be with this guy? Exactly. I'll tell you a quick story. Okay. I was at the trade show one year with TFO and some of my other manufacturers. We had uh, Rick, uh, the booth we used to, uh, you know, we had a very uh, down home, simple booth. And I'm watching uh, people up at the casting pond and there I see Lefty. And he's passing around our professional series 10 weight, nine foot 10 weight. He's passing it around and I'm, I'm listening and watching and he's telling the guys, Hey, Hey, you, you need to cast this rod, you know? And, uh, and that was just the way lefty was. He was working with Sage at the time, you know, he was a Sage and he took a bashing from the, uh, fly fishing community for leaving. Oh, Roy. Oh gosh. I heard stories that, uh, that, or curl your hair. A quick break for a word from our sponsor, Smitty's Fly Box, delivering monthly flies, fly materials, and accessories each month with their Smitty subscription fly box. If you need a unique fly selection for a new water you're fishing, or if you want to get started fly tying the easy way, Smitty's has you covered. They will find out where you're fishing and supply you with a custom fly assortment. And Smitty's has been producing high-quality flies and materials for over 30 years, and you may not realize it, but Smitty's is connected to Round Rocks, who is the sole supporter to Sportsman's Warehouse and has tied and supplied millions of flies over the years. I was at Sportsman's this week and picked up a couple of dozen flies, some chubby, small and large dry flies, some terrestrial patterns. The quality was exceptional. That's one of my struggles is the dry flies. So I love looking at these little guys from small little tiny flies that I can barely see with my eyesight. It's the big one. And these are the same people who are delivering and tying these flies to your door with Smitty's Fly Box. It's a great time right now to get stocked up for the season. You can head over to smittysflybox.com right now to take a look at their selection of flies and monthly boxes right now. Let Smitty's take the guesswork out of choosing fly materials and patterns right now. 
This is also an easy way to support this podcast and a small business who has been producing high-quality flies for many years. Check them out right now. That's Smitty's, S-M-I-T-T-Y-S, smittysflybox.com. Okay, back to the show. So why would, would, and I'm just curious on that, why would, you know, so those lefty, you know, there's nobody more famous than lefty other than maybe like Joe Brooks, but I mean, he's the biggest guy. Why would he take a bashing from from anybody? I mean, like he's just checking out a rod, right? I mean, what's what's that about? Because Sage is just the top of the thing. I, I or is it? Well, I, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not just picking on Sage. It's uh, one of the the real issues are status, money, and power. <laughs> Which uh, you know, it's that uh, you know, I'll pick on males here, and yeah. you can edit this out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you know, it's a sandbox mentality that I'm. I own the sandbox. I don't want you in my sandbox. I'm going to kick sand on you and keep you out of my sandbox. And I just think that's pretty pathetic. I mean, I think that's, I think that's pretty sad. Yeah. Like the idea being, these are the best brands. These are the brands that um, bring the money in for the industry. And why would you bring a smaller, lesser brand into the sandbox? And you've talked to Rick about the yeah. reason for that, you know. In fact, I don't know if you visited the website. It may be off there now. But Rick did a very uh, forthright piece recently on the website, uh, on the Instagram uh, account, about I'm the uh, professor emeritus of TFO USA, and uh, you can buy any fly rod you want, and Rick makes some I won't even attempt to paraphrase him, but I'll say, you know, there are many fly, fly rods out there. Just choose your, choose your poison. <laughs> yeah. But you know, and I know, and I talk to people about this all the time, consumers. If you really study, uh, and I try to, and try to figure out what propels people to buy things, it's often brand recognition. It's that that brand makes you feel good about yourself. It's got status. I tell people, I tell fly club owners this all the time, or fly club members, I say, look, why do you drive the car you do? And they kind of get quiet. And I say, why do you want to drive a Beamer? Why do you want to drive a Rolls? Why do you want to drive a, a Mercedes or a Ford or a Dodge or a Chevy? Or in my case, a Honda or a Mazda. Yep. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, the the... That's the reason why. Well, there are many reasons why people buy, but, you know, uh, but a lot of it is, you know, advertisers and manufacturers kind of get into your your cerebrum and, you know, kind of dictate what you buy. But so Lefty was casting to come back sur- a full circle of the story. And because uh, you'll love this story. And again, something I'll remember forever. So um, I'm watching Lefty there and a little while later in that, may have been that same day i see lefty just walking down the aisle and lefty and i had met each other but i mean we didn't know each other and uh lefty kind of pulled me aside like the you know i I always saw lefty as kind of like the ideal grandfather figure and lefty pulled me aside and he said how you doing dick and i said fine i saw you up there casting the tfo rod and he says i'll tell you what that 10 weight is a wonderful rod and uh, I said, well, Lefty, I've been working with the company now for, uh, I think it was a couple years by that time or so. It had been a few years. And I said, you know, it's it's tough to get uh, traction. And Lefty just almost put his arm around me and said, you know, Dick, you'll do just fine. Just keep working away. He said, those are good rods, 
Rick Pope and the crew there are nice people. They'll do just fine. They walked away. <laughs> well, see, uh, and I, I kind of brag about this. You know, I was uh, at TFO before Lefty. And then, of course, Lefty uh, joined us uh, just a short while later. In fact, Rick Pope was supposed to come to the Bellevue Fly Fishing Show, and he canceled at the last minute. And I wasn't very happy. And he said, Dick, I'm going to tell you, I'm working on something right now that you will really, and all the other sales reps and everyone affiliated with TFO or Springbrook TFO will be happy about. And I can't tell you about it right now, but I promise you, you will be the first to know because I had to cancel uh, on you going to the Bellevue uh, fly fishing show at the last minute. He called me on Monday morning. He says, Lefty and I have a deal. Uh, and he said, uh, he's going to, uh, he's leaving Sage and he's coming over to work with us. And I really minimized because I, I knew Lefty's uh, legacy. I really minimized his effect on rod sales. And I was wrong. I thought, eh, Lefty's a saltwater, eastern trout fisherman type. It's not going to propel sales. Uh uh-uh, uh, it did. It did. That in the addition in our territory of uh, Bob Miser and Mike Kinney. And that, that's a story too, in and of itself, I can tell you about that. But that's, you know, we, uh, and I was involved in that, um, that situation. So that was kind of cool. Wow. Okay. So that's a, that's an awesome lefty. I love the lefty stories. This is good. We got a few of these in here. So you, you've got this going, you've got, you're with TFO. Talk about, you know, I want to bring my dad into this because he's, I haven't talked about him a lot on this podcast over the years, partly because I wanted to do this thing on my own and see if I could create this thing. And also, I mean, I think he's old enough that a lot of people don't know him, you know, don't know the fly shop, especially the younger generation. But talk about how you ran into my dad. What was that first interaction like? Well, you're going to laugh because we, Jim Irwin, one of my dearest, longest term friends, uh, lived right near around the corner from your dad's first shop. Mm. Okay. So Jim and I met because through our wives, his wife and my wife taught together and they're still best friends. In fact, Carol's coming over, I think, uh, uh, maybe today or no, that's tomorrow. She's coming over with a bunch of ladies and they're doing something. But uh, And she was a grand prize winner at your dad's um, grand opening. Oh, but wow. So what happened is that... Uh, Jim and I used to go to opening day on the Metolius. We got to talking. We went out to Abby's Pizza on Stark Street that's still there, had a uh, had a pizza together. That's where we met. And we got to talking because uh, his wife, Carol, knew that uh, through Mary, my wife, that I fly fished. And she said, we got to get the two guys together. And, of course, we hit it off immediately. And we got all excited. And Jim and I started opening the season together either that year or the next year on the Metolius. And that was a ritual uh, for quite a few years until I moved away, you know, moved to Salt Lake. And uh, so one day Jim calls me up and he goes, Dick, you got to come over. Something's exciting's happening. And I go, okay, Jim, I'll be right over. So I lived up on Mount Tabor at the time, drove out to uh, Jim's place off of Halsey there. And uh, he says, jump in my truck. And, uh, you know, he was kind of secretive about it. Yeah. We drove over there. Your father's shop was not open yet, but we were two kids in a candy store with our noses pressed up against the glass going, huh. ah, I can't believe it. A fly shop on the east side of Portland. Oh, gosh. 
God has listened to us. <laughs> <laughs> what year was that? What year was that when you were pushing your face against the window? I think it was 77. Oh, wow. So now, see, so this is the amazing thing because we're going back, you know, because my dad had some evolution. But you, so you literally remember the first shot back on over on 172nd and Halsey. We had our noses up to the glass before he had stuff in there. Wow. He started off carrying a bunch of Orvis uh, stuff. And the rumor has it that he was in cahoots. And you can tell your dad I said that. Yeah. With a guy who owned the Orvis store, he ran up out of Promontory Park on the uh, on the Clackamas, on the watershed up there. And uh, they were good friends. And, you know, uh, Doug, your dad started carrying Orvis stuff. But uh, make a long story short, you know, we, we were panting to get into the shop when it opened. And uh, I didn't go to the grand opening, but Carol Irwin won a guided trip with your dad. And, uh, you know, I... You tell me, were you alive in 77? <laughs> yeah, well, that's the amazing thing. This is so cool because I wasn't expecting, I thought you were more, the, because the second half of the story is the shop moved eventually, but the shop that you're talking about. Oh, I know that. Yeah, the shop I you're know. talking about was the big shop. It was Stuart Custom Tackle, right? So it was not only Fly, but he had Tackle and and it was a big shop back in the day. It was like down there. And, uh, oh, and it was, I was a big shop. Yeah, it was a big shop. And so I was born in 75. So I was two, but I mean, I grew up around the shop. By the time I was five, I mean, I was sitting, we, we spent our, all of our time at the fly shop, tying flies. I don't want to embarrass you, Dave. Yeah. But I think I probably saw you in diapers. Yeah, that's right. You remember that. So I was that little. Well, I was, <laughs> no, no. I And I can't remember your brother's ages. Yeah. So they're five. I'm, I'm born in 75 and then it's 1970 and then 69 and then 67. So they're all older than me. Okay, they're all older than you, but I mean, I I probably did see you in diapers because I I met your mom in the shop, Marcia, right? Yep. Oh yeah. Yeah, and in the shop early on, she'd come in there helping your dad out, but you know, <laughs> <and> I mean, <laughs> I mean, I I go back to the very beginning, and then now it's a Domino's Pizza. Every time I go by there, I go, oh my gosh, I think it is. It was a hair hair styling place. Oh no, it's been a bunch of different things. I think now it's an actually gamey, it's a gamer store. I just drove by there the other day. But um, but no, so tell me this on that shop, just, you know, what do you remember most about that shop? Is there anything that sticks out to you? I mean, other than, I mean, obviously my dad was there, but do you remember it? Like it was pretty big, right? For the time. It was big and uh, I can almost see the rod racks there. And a lot of stuff that, quite frankly, uh, let's see, I was, was I teaching then? Let's see, I got to think 77. Yeah, I was teaching then. I was a teacher there. And, you know, not, I didn't have a lot of money, so we'd, we'd look at it. And the other thing that your dad will chuckle over, he did a very good job of bringing, uh, I know, I think, uh, did he have Doug Swisher come in? He had some oh, top huh. names come yeah. into the shop to do uh, presentations. Well, he definitely had Jim Teeny. I know Jim Teeny was a big part of those. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I'm I'm Jim's uh, longest serving sales rep. Yeah, <laughs> and I had Jim on a long time ago. But is he still going? Uh, he's still out there going strong. Yeah, well, not as strong as he uh, used to, but, uh, you know, he's had a tough time and I won't throw uh, dirt on anyone, but I, I think some of his suppliers have not treated him well. And, uh, you know, I just love Jim and Donna. I mean, they're good friends and Jim's still at it. And, you know, I'm still his rep and trying to help him out in every way I can. But uh, as we like to joke, to digress a bit, 
everyone, including the people who used to make his lines, have knocked off his T-series. Oh, yeah. You know, and that, that's yeah. been the big seller. And, I mean, they, you know, and Jim, you know, you you know Jim. And oh, yeah. And I know your dad does well. Jim, uh, and it's a fine attribute of Jim's. Jim just rolls with the punches, laughs about it. Jim's just a, a fun-loving guy, kind of like Rick Pope. If you don't like Jim Teeny, no, and, and here's the comparison. They have different personalities in different ways. But if you don't like Jim Teeny uh, and you've actually met him, then something's wrong. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, and we've all, you have, we've all heard the Jim Teeny rumors. Yeah. And I can, if we, if we have any time, I can tell you a funny story that came up at a club meeting. Yeah. You mean like, like the throwing rocks at fish back in the day when he was. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 I was at a, I was at a club meeting once where that uh, first question out of the box, Jim did a presentation is a, a nice professional young guy raises his hand, stands up and says, Jim, I've got to ask you a question. And he said, can you elaborate on the ethics of throwing rocks at fish <laughs> yeah and i mean he was very professional as was jim and jim kind of grinned and he goes well you gotta understand he said uh, jim and i think i may have this story right he says you know in some other countries that's done to move fish you're throwing rocks not at the fish but to move the fish into a fishable lie where you can get a fly on them then he got a big grin on his face and he goes, had I known the trouble that that was going to create for me, I would have never allowed it to be filmed. And everyone, the whole audience, this, there was like several, there was a big group. It was uh, Central Washington Tri-Cities Club. They started laughing. Really? Because you know, the way Jim Hanley goes, and if I knew the grief that was going to cause me, I would have never allowed it to be filmed. Right. <laughs> so that was one of those, that was one of those ones that, uh, probably helped get him known a little bit, but it wasn't something he wanted to, to be known for. Oh, uh, one of the famed outdoor writers, and now his name escapes me, uh, I think it was another Jim, and Jim Tini will kill me for not remembering his name. And uh, He was a hunting uh, writer. He wrote an article in one of the Sports of Field or Outdoor Life about Jim, and he's, uh, the title was, this man throws rocks at fish. That's right. And that's, you know, what got Jim uh, his notoriety. One thing that people would be interested in, uh, Jim is a sight fisherman, and a lot of people don't know this. He's gifted as far as spotting fish. Lefty recognized that, and uh, Lefty had Jim write one of the uh, Lefty's little library, you know, that series of 10 books or whatever, where he had all those famous people write little uh, books. He had uh, Jim write the uh, salmon. Oh, wow. Book on f fly fishing for salmon. And I have that uh, book and uh, that edition. And Lefty told me personally, he said, Jim is by far the finest salmon fisherman I've ever fished with. And uh, and Lefty also uh, and did this once, I think, at the TFO meeting. He was talking about Jim, and he goes, you know, Jim has a different way of approaching uh, sighting, uh, seeing fish. He said he, in his mind's eye, uh, brackets the stream into windows. And so what Jim does mentally and visually when he's looking at a stream, he's not looking at a wide uh, field of vision. He's looking at a very confined segment, like you're peeking into a window, right? right? And he says that's how he's developed the technique 
to spot fish. And Jim, you know, uh, I think wrote about that in the book and he told Lefty about it. So of course, being the wise guy I am, I said, well, Jim, you're a peeping Tom. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Jim. That's so basic. Yeah. So that's, and Jim was a big, you know, has been a big name for a long time. And I've, yeah, I remember when my dad had the shop going and throughout, he was, Jim was famous. You know, he was a famous guy out here and around the country. He's still well known. And the other thing about Jim, and I could go on and on about him, Jim is a repository. He is an encyclopedia of fly fishing. Oh, he is. And even personality-wise, and even of non-fly fishing um, uh, guys, he's met so many people in the industry. He's like my um, encyclopedia. I'll say, Jim, uh, have you met this guy? And Jim not only has met a lot of well-known historical anglers, he knows a lot of details about them. You know, right. in fact, uh, and you know, again, Jim is a close friend and he shares things to me in confidence that I can't share. And he'll say, he'll say, well, you know, uh, you might want to watch this person because based on my experience, but, uh, but most often Jim, Jim is just a real positive person. You know, he just says, yeah, uh, you know, he's known so many, many people. And for a while there we had a, uh, and Jim probably didn't utilize it to full effect, but, uh, you know, and it may be an issue of capitalization and having enough money. But at one time, Flip had a line with him. Oh. Lefty had a line with him. Dave Whitlock had a line with wow. him. Kelly Gallup had a line with him. Uh, and I've left out a bunch. Right. So the biggest, basically some of the biggest, all the biggest names had worked with him because he had the, he had a good line. Yeah, and the other thing that people don't acknowledge him enough for, Jim knows a lot about uh, fly line taper and design, you know, and a lot of people don't uh, you know, recognize him for that because he, he's uh, with your father. In fact, I think Doug's name has come up, and you can ask your dad about that. He said, yeah, when I used to fish with Doug, he said, we were splicing the lines together to make shooting heads and yada, yada, yada. And I came up with this idea to make a one-piece uh, integrated line. And, you know, he is the creator of the integrated sink tip line. And he also told me that your father and he hung around together fishing so much on the upper Clackamas and uh, Eagle Creek that he said, yeah, we wondered if our wives were going to divorce us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don and Marcia must have thought, these guys are sneaking off all the time going up steelhead fishing on Eagle Creek. Yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, you can recount this all to your dad and he'll just laugh. Yeah. Well, I remember, I mean, I remember as a kid, you know, and we'd hit the, the Sandy, I remember crossing side channel. I'd be on my dad's shoulders as a little kid. I couldn't even wait across the river. So I, we'd cross these crazy wintertime flows with Jim. You know, I remember a few times out there with Jim, we'd get down to the, the side channel and, and they'd do their thing. And that was it. Yeah, we're splitting lines. And, and eventually, you know, scientific anglers, right? I mean, I think that's where the first lines they had kind of came off of what, uh, what Jim was doing right back in the day, which is, it's all connected, yeah. you know, all those lines, scientific anglers, Orvis. And, uh, but Jim, regardless, he was a huge influence on the fly line industry back way back in the seventies, right? That's what we're looking at here. Yeah. In fact, what happened is he got scientific anglers to build him and they didn't want to, they told him, nah, we don't think it's going to sell that concept. And it just took off. And in fact, he said, Jim told me the actual number of lines he had to order 
and he paid for on his own. And he said they sold through those things so quickly that, uh, you know, it's unbelievable. But that being said, you know, what Jim's told me his favorite fishing is, do you know what his favorite fishing is? No, I don't. Oh, yeah, I do. I do. I do. Don't, let what, me, let me tell you. Yeah, because I asked him, I said, you have one species and it, he said it's tarpon. Exactly. In fact, it's tarpon fishing under the bridges at night. Huh. And uh, I don't know if he told you the Bruce Charge story. Where no. <laughs> you know, you have to be careful. And I can't recall uh, if Bruce fell into the water or whatever. But, you know, the danger of fishing for tarpon at night is sharks. Oh, you know? right. And uh, I think Jim recounted a story where I don't know if Bruce, he must have fallen in the water or something off the boat. And Bruce, you know, panicked and almost thought he got bit or something by a shark. And, you know, you have to know Jim. Jim just just howls over those stories. <laughs> and Bruce is just another guy that I just love to death. Yeah, and, Bruce is great. And you've talked to Bruce, I hope, on your. Yeah, yeah. We were, we were in the process still of setting up a trip to head out with Bruce. We're going to do that probably, hopefully soon. I want to, yeah, Bruce is amazing. Yeah, and he's got his son into it now. Oh, yeah. The ex-high-level hockey player. Oh, cool. Yeah, the challenge for us is we're setting up, we have this travel program we're setting up around the country. We're trying to keep the trips really reasonable cost-wise, and that's the one challenge with Saltwater and Bruce is that, you know, it's hard to make a cheap, an inexpensive trip to Florida. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, it's just expensive. But, no, I'm going to hopefully get out and fish with Bruce. I've got all, I mean, that's the thing about, amazing about Jim is that, you know, you think a teeny, all those people. I mean, I'm trying now to get around and fish with people, but I've got a family, and it's not easy you know, to do stuff, right? And Jim must have just, I mean, he must have traveled the world, right? Doing fly fishing everywhere. Yes. In fact, that's what's fascinating. Not only is he an encyclopedia of people and personalities, but he's fished all over. In fact, um, you know, I ran into, uh, I donate, try to donate a few trips each year, typically down the Deschutes. And my, I just got off of two of those. And I oh, you did? And- like trout trips? Yeah, but all the reps get hit up all the time, trout and steelhead, but mostly trout, you know, and, and uh, we get hit up all the time. Won't you donate to the club? And yada, yada. And, and and I'll be candid with you. It's easier for me to donate a rod or a reel or some product, but I, I've thought about this a lot. And I've, uh, Clark Mania kind of clued me in on that, that club. Uh, I donated some equipment and then one year I decided to donate a I call them instructional trips. I'm not a guide, so I don't accept any money. And I just want to teach people who are interested in different techniques, either be it lake, Euro fishing, you know, whatever. Uh, and uh, streamer fishing, you know, those are some of my passions, especially with Jim's lines, you know, sink tip fishing. A lot of people don't do that. So I donate trips each year and, uh, you know, it's kind of a fun way to get to know people. And, uh, you know, I just came off of a couple of those. So how was that trip on the shoot? Did you guys get some, uh, some trout action? Yeah, we did. Uh, you know, it's, uh, of course, uh, we're in the dog days of summer. It's a little tougher, but, uh, you know, both of these parties were interested in learning some of the finer parts of, uh, of what I call technical Euro nymphing. And, uh, and it's always kind of fun because, uh, <laughs> I can tell you as a professional, Euro nymphing is frowned upon by many, um, shop owners, guides, etc. And 
I won't elaborate unless you want me to. Yeah, no, I do. Actually, let me just take, because the Euronymphing thing, we're doing a Euronymphing school in Idaho this year with Pete Erickson and his crew. And I did that because, I mean, on this podcast, people listening now, I mean, we're just chatting about old times, but I mean, I always go out to our podcast listeners and say, hey, what do you want me to put on the, for episode content and for trips? And, and Euronymphing came up a lot. Like people want to learn about it. And I, and I do too. I mean, it's interesting. So I'm really curious. It seems like, especially since fly fishing so innovative, like why would shops not want to dig into Euronymphing? It seems like just another fun technique to try out. Well, some of it's justified, uh, and I've had firsthand experience of this. You do or you can, if you're a moderately skilled angler, you can catch a ton of fish. I mean, more fish than you ever thought fishing with a strike indicator or a sink tip or a floating line. And I take people to task on this, what I'm going to say next. And I've done this publicly in clubs. I said, listen... If you're a fish counter, I have some issues with that. And I said, this is the reason why. And I've had people tell me this. They've said, well, you know how many fish I caught on XYZ River? I caught 40 to 50 trout. And I go, well, do you realize there's a mortality rate? Let's take it at 5% or even less. But, you know, let's even be bold and say there's a 10% mortality rate. You've killed four fish. Yeah. If you've hooked and landed 40 fish. And I've been told stories of guys, and I think they're true. I mean, these came from credible people of certain people that maybe they're friends. Maybe they're these people themselves that are taking golf counters with them and literally clicking oh, wow. them after each fish. Jeez. Said, you know, that, that's not good. Exactly. That's not good. That's not, and that's not good for the fishery. That's, I mean, you know, it's become a numbers game. So that's why a lot of the shop owners and guides and people in the industry really don't like it. That makes sense. Here's the other side. They do not fully understand how technical Euronymphing can be. And uh, the spokesperson, and, you know, I don't cruise a lot of sites, but I'll, I'll tell you what, I know him personally. I had him come show up at the Portland show a number of years ago. Devin Olson, yeah, I mean, is the man. I mean, if you want, if you want to watch someone who does great instruction and really educates you on how technical it could be, watch Devin. You know, and say, and say, oh, that's simple. Well, it's not that simple. You know, I mean, uh, you know, I've just started. We had some good success. You asked me how we did this yeah. week. Had some. Uh, I'm fishing a prototype uh, that Jason Randall developed of a 11 foot four weight, and we're just playing with a new, uh, you know, a different fabrication. And um, Jason had an 11 foot four weight sent to me, and I'm looking at the rod, going, you know, this is an interesting rod. I've been fishing it a lot because that's what they want me to do, and it's great rod, wonderful rod. I said, you know, I think I'm going to try jigging some Euro streamers with this thing. And boy, I got to tell you, <laughs> it's fun. And the the guys that I took out on Monday, they were getting a little tired and not so much struggling with. Uh, they were using mostly uh, my rigs. You know, uh, I use a lot of micro leaders, uh, very uh, ultra thin uh, leaders. And so I said, "Hey, why don't you try jigging this eleven uh, foot four weight with these? Uh, you know, this line I I put together, and jig this Euro streamer that caught the biggest fish." 
that way. And uh, the one fellow ended up his trip using that rod, fishing a little tiny pocket that we're now another guy uh, I took on a donated trip actually keyed me onto this little pocket. You know, it's one of those pockets, Dave, where you would go by and go, eh, that's not even worth fishing. Right. He did real well there last year. And so I teased this guy and I said, hey, take your uh, tungsten uh, streamer through there and I'll be darned if he caught the biggest fish of the trip. You know, and I'm there going, going, wow, there is a little, that little hidey hole does hold decent sized fish and it's just a tiny little pocket. And uh, he caught it on that rod. Gotcha. This is good. This is great. Awesome. So yeah, we're and Euro is obviously effective. It, it makes sense. I think I always think of, I hear that argument, you know, okay, it's, you're going to kill more fish for sure. We want to avoid that. I think of the other techniques, just fly fishing in general, like steelhead. Let's take it that. I remember back in the day we were casting nine foot, eight weight rods. We had basic stuff. We were splicing lines. Well, now the Skagit stuff we're doing with Jeff Liskey and Rick Kustich is so focused and technical that, I mean, I'm sure guys are catching more fish now with Skagit lines than they used to steal. I mean, do you think that's similar to the Euro thing, right? I mean, aren't we always just getting better with the gear? Yeah, we are. And the other thing that I want to, and some people may disagree with this, but I think the way you fish is kind of a, kind of reveals how you like to fish. Heck, getting real psychological, it may even relate to who you are in part. Some people like to cast far, you know, so use a two-handed rod. They like to, in fact, Teeny jokes about that all the time. And the good spay guys all will tell you that. They say, you know how many fish we catch in close using two-handed rods? You go, yeah, you do. You know how many fish we catch on the hang down? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and, and you've been there and done oh, it. Yeah. You go, geez, I was daydreaming. And the thing fly was hanging below me and wham, there it is. Especially on a river like the Deschutes, it has those long, long runs. So um, I like to stealth fish. I love sneaking up to fish. And if you were to go out on a trip with me on the Deschutes, that's the first thing I'll tell people. I'll say, I'm going to watch you wade, and I'm going to critique you and criticize you on how you wade, probably, because you've got to get close to these fish if you're going to effectively urine them. And you know where my stealth um, fishing propensity arose fishing places like Armstrong and Depew's Spring Creek and Livingston, fishing the Henry's Fork and Mike Lawson's era. And uh, I mean, you have to, you can't. Hunting, you're hunting fish. You're hunting. I got so close to Big Rainbow once on the ranch there that I could literally see the dots on its back as I was, <laughs> I was downstream from him. I got that close to him and I never hooked the fish. I kept getting drifts over and I'm going, geez, I'm just a few feet away from this thing. And it was so focused on taking whatever was hatching that day. I could see the spots on the back of that fish, you know, and I'm there going, geez, I got up close to this fish and I still can't, uh, you know, get him to take. Quick break for a word from our sponsor. With more than 40 years of experience in coffee, the Angler's Coffee Team roasts a full range of coffee with one goal in mind, delivering excellent coffee to every single angler. Responsibly sourced from farms using sustainable growing practices, you can rest easy knowing you are doing your part. Roasted and shipped within 48 hours to assure freshness. 
for me, it's all about that freshness and taste when I crack open a bag of Anglers in the morning. I feel good because I know not only does it taste great, but I am supporting great movements along the way. With a blend for every taste, a dry dropper on the go tea bag option, and a roast sampler, you know Joe at Anglers is serving your needs. It's time to step up to better coffee and more impact for the fish species and causes we love. You can head over to wetflyswing.com slash anglers right now to grab a bag of greatness today. That's anglers, A-N-G-L-E-R-S, to make a change today. Well, let's, uh, I want to get one story of my dad. We talked about a little bit on the shop. Did you have a story we could just put in the books on my dad, something that is memorable over the years that you, you know, you want to shed more, that sheds more light on him? Well, the funny thing is, and this is a worthwhile story, but I'll tell you this about your dad. Your dad always struck me as not only a very knowledgeable angler, just by the way he would tell you about things. And we all have a certain mannerisms. And your dad's, when I ran into him at shows, you know, in Albany, that's where I'd run into him. We'd swap stories, and as you know, him being your father, he'd forgotten a lot of it, and then he'd get this kind of grin on his face, and you say, yeah, that brings back memories, (laughs) you know. And uh, one of my favorite stories was when I was working uh, with your brother Jeff in the shop there. And uh, I'm not saying this to pat myself on the back, but it comes from my insurance background. I am always evaluating risk for a retailer. I'm always looking at, do you have too much product? Should, should you, um, Rick Pope, to get back to him, I was up once at Red's Fly Shop, and Steve Joyce and his wife were living in a trailer. This is before it opened as a full-fledged resort. And Steve decided he wanted to order the whole Loon product, big, expensive uh, point-of-purchase display. So uh, I went out to my car and I called up Rick. Rick used to answer the phone. I mean, even into the evenings, that's oh, wow. how hard that man would work. I'd call, he'd be there at seven or eight o'clock sometimes. I'd call him at, you know, six or five our time and he'd pick up the phone. And, uh, but this was during the day. And I said, Rick, um, guys at Bread's here. Uh, and Steve's always, I consider Steve a friend. Uh, wants to order this uh, big loon display can we get it rick goes yeah we can but tell him not to order it and i go what do you mean rick he says it's too much product and uh he said he'll never sell through that and he'll end up with a bunch of stale inventory so that that's why i'm always uh watching that well i was talking with your brother and your dad was there and i said jeff you know let's manage this carefully dad looks at me (laughs) with that with a tugster look and he goes dick I wish you were around when I was running the shop. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I said, I said, you learned the hard way. Right. But, uh, but, uh, but the other quick story I'll tell you, <laughs> and you can tell your dad and he's going to love this one. Yeah. Georgia Liskey, who worked in Jim's office for decades, 20 some years. And Teeny? Yes. Jim Teeny's shop. Yeah. One day we were talking and your father's name came up and Georgia got this funny little smile on her, on her face. She goes, Oh, Mr. Stewart. I go, what are you talking about? She goes, all us young girls just had the biggest crush. Oh, um, <laughs> yeah, tell your dad that. And I it's will. true. And I, I said, 
Georgia, really? She goes, oh, yeah. Mr. Stewart was so handsome. Oh, and that's funny. I recognized, too, that he was an athlete. I could tell. I could tell when I first watched him cast, watched him get around. But here's my favorite story. We were talking one day about bad etiquette. Mm. And Doug goes, yep. He says, I had something happen once that uh, will never happen again. I go, what's that? He says, I was down there. Maybe he was fishing. It may have been steelhead fishing. Your dad may remember this story. But he said, we're steelhead fishing in Mecca Flats area. And he said, lo and behold, a guy low holes me. And uh, your father called him out. And he said, hey, get out of here. You know, you're fishing below me in my water. The guy goes, are you going to make me? And your father and this guy got into it, literally. He said, they're rolling around on the ground. You may have gotten involved because my son, he said something like my sons were there. Yeah. And he said, the guy was just a nasty guy. And he said, my sons got involved in the fracas. And he said, he said, when I saw that happened, he said, it convinced me, look at what has happened here. Yeah. I got into a fight. I dragged my kids into this fight. And he says, that's not a good thing. No, no, no. (laughs) So so you probably can't tell that story, but I mean. No, I remember that story. Actually, that is a, a, I mean, I remember that story like it was yesterday. I was probably, I was probably 12 or something. I don't even know. But what happened was, and I'll just, just so you, because this is an interesting story. So that did happen. And, uh, and what happened was, is my dad, by this time he was, he was older, but my dad back in the day, he was a fighter. I mean, he was, he got in all sorts of, like, basically he, uh, he was almost a professional athlete. He went to university of Portland, was a basketball player and baseball, you know, and he played yep. and his friends were all of the black guys on the team, right? Those were his buddies, but they used to go to bars in Portland back in the day. You can imagine in the sixties oh. and they would go in and he'd be the white guy going into the black bar, you know, or, or vice versa. So they yep. got into lots yep. of, and, and all his buddies on the team, you know, so would back him up. But there's this whole thing. So my dad got in lots of fights, you know, and I heard stories about these fights. So he wasn't new to fighting. And, uh, and so that day on the river, I never see my dad get in a fight until that day. And I watched him and he was older. I think he'd been drinking that day. So they were rolling, I, you know, on the ground, it was a fight. But what happened was my brother came up the road with his buddy yeah, and, he told me. Yeah, and so he walked up and he pulled him off, and the guy was like, "Hey, oh, you want, you know, you want a piece of me?" And uh, literally, the guy swung, and my brother decked him and and laid him out on the ground. Well, your dad told me because uh, he said the guy actually, I don't know if you recollect the same thing, got up again, and he your brother decked him again. Yeah, and then the guy finally walked off and it, figured out that. But this is getting a bit personal, but you got to remember, and I didn't elaborate this. I'm a Japanese American who grew up in an kind of an upper middle class neighborhood in a very nice area. And uh, we were the only identifiable minority uh, growing up. And I'm the oldest son. I have an older sister. I got in a lot of fights when I was young, too. But but I, you know, people would say very nasty racial things to me. Or they pull the sides of their eyes up, you know, and say, yeah. you know, you're a Chinaman or something. And that's, I mean, the sad thing about all this, and, you know, you can look back and say, well, I'm in a lot more mature than that now. But as a kid, you go, wait a minute here. And then, quite frankly, I never started a fight. Uh, fights came to me. 
And I, you know, and I, I learned to defend myself. Yeah. I mean, I think this is a, actually a positive message for me and for, you know, I think my kids and people, I mean, I think I'm very much, you know, because of my dad started out, right. He had his, some of his best friends were black. And because of that, you know what I mean? Like I always, I never had any issues there. I don't think. And even to the, like I tell you, those documentary, I'm watching this thing on Ken Burns. It's the civil war. I mean, you'd look at what the civil war was based on. I mean, right. I mean, it's based on slavery. I mean, that's, that's what this country, right. We have that legacy, which, and, uh, and at the end of the day, you know what I mean? Like it, the country came together and obviously we all know the story, but, um, but yeah, I mean, we battled race. I mean, it's one of those things. And, and I mean, like, I don't know, how do you solve that? Right. I think you, I mean, I think you just, I don't know. Well, what I observed, uh, is that, and I had many, many friends back there. I was very popular ultimately, you know, I mean, but you can relate to this probably, um, I don't want to sound sexist, but you know, men again have a have a certain way of wanting to deal with conflict, and it's often fighting. And um, they learn not to mess with me, and uh, you know, other guys didn't. So then they become your pals. They go literally. They go, well, this guy, don't mess with him because. Right he's going to beat you up. He's got quick hands and, you know, he's, he's got, and so, uh, you know, you gain their respect that way. Uh, it's not the most positive way, but I observed it with one family, especially the older, they had an older daughter. They tormented my sister. She tormented my sister and her, uh, younger brother who was my age tried the same thing with me until I caught him one day. (laughs) <laughs> yeah he was fast but not fast enough right and we we had a uh there was i don't think there was any punching involved but i made it clear to him that he was not gonna do this anymore and uh and he stopped yeah you know, so yeah 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 what's your take on message on this i i'm curious because i have a couple of little kids and you have uh you have some kids oh yeah yeah, yeah, you got kids. Yeah. So what what's the take? So you look at your, you know, your parents' background and, you know, and then your background and then at your kids, do you see a lot of, yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of differences nowadays versus say how you grew up? I do. Uh, but, you know, I look at the, I call it the undertow of racism and it reveals itself in, in really pretty insidious ways. Yeah, it's still there. No one nowadays will... Well, almost no one will uh, profess to be racist or say, you know, I hate Hispanics, I hate blacks, I don't like Asians. But as a quick little aside, I'm pretty irreverent, you know, and uh, a jo- I'm a bit of a tease jokester. And when uh, these attacks were occurring on Asian people, I talked to some uh, guys I know in the industry and I said, yeah, I better lay low. Hmm. And they, they were serious. They said, yeah, you better watch where you go. Oh, wow. <laughs> they, and I go, uh, I don't know. I've, I'm pretty comfortable with yeah. taking care of myself. <laughs> but <laughs> But you also look at you know, some of the Asians that at least were publicly assaulted, they were ladies or old oh people. And you're Jeez. there going, well, why would you want to take an old person wow. and wail on them, you know, and just attack them? That's crazy. You know, and I said, well, it's because you're a coward, you know I mean? Right. But, but it's crazy. Yeah. They, I, I wish, I think things have gotten better, but I will say this for my, my uh, two kids and I'm not saying because they were brought up uh, well. I just think there's, I have optimism for this country because I think 
uh, many of the uh, kids, and I see it on my kids, they're savvy. Oh, yeah. They realize what's going on. They don't always uh, vocalize it, but they're smart, and they know what's going on. And there's a reason why a lot of them, including my kids, are not happy with what's going on with this country. They're smart enough to go, that's not going to get us further down the road. Yeah. No, so. no, it's not. Yeah, I know. It's it's kind of interesting because, you know, we're going deep in this, but it's like the, the Revolutionary War, you know, a hundred years later, whatever, you know, the civil war a hundred years later, the, you know, the sixties, Martin Luther King Jr. Right. I mean, a hundred years from now, right. What's it going to be? What's it going to be like? Like, you yeah. know I mean? I, I think we're making steps, right. I mean, I think we are making steps, but yeah. Well, I think we are and the reality is, and, and that's what's caused some of the fear is this country is at, or soon will be, uh, more minorities than right. uh, Caucasians. It's, I mean, it's a fact of life. You know, I mean, I mean, how could you, you, you may not like that. No, uh, I think you do. How, that's, but that's great. That, that's the amazing thing. Well, I have obviously have no problems with it, but that's the reality. And so you, you just, I see people flailing away who are racist going, you know, you go, that's just not the reality. The crazy thing about it is, is, I mean, again, this country was built on, you know, immigrants and why would you not want, that's what you want. I mean, that's the whole goal is to have the most, and that's what we're known for. We're known. That's why people still come to this country from around the world because they know the diversity, right? I mean, it's kind of crazy. I think it is a small, I think it's always a small chunk of bad apples that are loud and that's what you, you see. But I think that for the most part, I think this country is pretty amazing people, right? That's, it's still built on great people. Well, it is. In fact, one last story uh, that will, uh, uh, again, maybe hit home with you. Um, the Japanese Americans as a whole, and I've literally attended one group meeting when they were traveling around Oregon saying, what are we going to do with creating a memorial in uh, Tule Lake, California? That's where my parents were in turn. That was considered the a problem camp where high risk security people were sent. And there were also German POWs oh, that wow. were, uh, came there were imprisoned there uh, from the European sector. I didn't know that until I went to this meeting, but Japanese Americans as a whole are very quiet about their camp experiences as were my parents. And I can't say my parents were this way, but I, I sense a lot of them are ashamed. They're ashamed that they were ever, I mean, as strange as that sounds, they were ashamed of how they ever got into that uh, predicament. So they don't like talking about the internment. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's kind of sad. Yeah. You mean they're ashamed kind of because, kind of because they love this country and that they, this country put them there. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, you know, they're so proud of the country. So uh, when 9-11 hit, I never thought I'd hear this from my father. My father was very private and what I'll call inner focused. And uh, he was sitting in his chair. Up, uh, they had a beautiful home in Salem. And uh, he's watching uh, the 9-11. Uh, and I happened to stop over there. And he turns to me and he goes, I hope that what happens to people of Middle Eastern descent doesn't happen to what happened to us in World right. War II. And I thought, I can't believe that that came out of my father's mouth. So you know that at some very deep level, he really, really, because, of course, let's be honest, when we were attacked on 9-11, oh, yeah. boy, if you're Middle Eastern, 
you had a target on your back. And my here's here's my father going, I just hope that what happens to Middle Eastern descent people isn't what happened to us in after World War II. So Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree totally. Wow. Well, we we went down the road. Let's take it back as we take it out of here, Dick. Let's take it back to the, the fly gear real quick because I want to hear about TFO and uh, and just the rep lifestyle. I mean, so you're still doing that. I mean, how many brands are you working with right now? Well, uh, I'm real selective. I've reached a point in my career where I can be. My main brands are, in fact, it's a little bit annoying. Everyone I run into, fly clubs and that, or, you know, where I'll go to Albany, they'll go, Dick's a TFO rep. And I want to go, you represent more than TFO. Yeah. I'm also the Angler Sport Group rep, and that's known primarily uh, because of the Daiichi brand of hooks. Uh, I'm the longtime Rainey's rep. And I'll, I'll give a shout out for Rainey's uh, and a, a bit, a quick rant. We are one of the top fly companies in the world. And people in the industry know this. We, Umpqua, Montana Fly, Solitude, we're the one of the main players. What people don't understand, and I hear this complaints from shop owners and consumers, they go, boy, Dick, your flies are expensive. And I said, do you know why they're expensive? Because we pay people a living wage. Oh, yeah. Our factories in Thailand. And I, you know, I talked to Rainey's about that. I said, no, you don't want to toot your own horn, but I've been at a presentation that the owner of Rainey's gave showing the factory workers, their conditions, uh, people that work in our factory have actually gained weight and are now are buying automobiles. Yeah, <laughs> so, right. So, I mean, I mean, a lot of the people in this industry think that, oh, these fly factories, and, and there are probably some, you know, slave labor and the whole bit. That just doesn't happen. You know, I'm Jim's uh, long-term rep. I'm the first and original thingamabobber rep. Oh, thingamabobber, <laughs> right, right, right. That's still out there. Yeah, yeah even with your yeah. dipping, the, the bobbers are still out there. Yeah, and Jason Randall, we could do a separate show on that, or Jason can. Jason hates hates most strike indicators for good scientific reasons. You know, Jason's very scientific and very analytical. He's a, he's a high-end uh, vet. You know, he's a he's a retired vet. And then, of course, I represent a premium waiter company, a Quaz, which uh, is oh, yeah. gaining some notoriety. See, you you recognize the brand? Oh yeah, yeah, I know, yeah, I know the brand. Yeah, and and we we kind of chuckle because, uh, you know, as a sales rep, I will tell you, uh, we're not known or we don't want to seem to be known by a lot of retailers because we do just don't spend money on, on the brand. We spend money on production. So I tell people, dealers and uh, consumers, I'm essentially representing a premium waiter factory. That's, uh, you know, that's what we build the uh, waiters for and have in the past built waiters for all sorts of brands. And I always chuckle because every major brand of waiter has approached us either uh, outwardly or has called us and said, maybe we ought to have you building our waiters. And uh, and we have a very successful relationship right now with one of the, the oh, gotcha. major world world uh, uh, brands we're manufacturing their waiters. So I just kind of plug along going, yep, these, if, if you want, this isn't brand X, it's actually brand A, but... Uh, but you know, it's we just don't spend money on on uh, yeah, aquas, aquas, a q u u a z. Is that that's right, aquas? Yeah. 
What's the, so the rep, talk about that a little bit, just that life, like what you do as a rep, like do you, so people that don't know you, you have these brands and for TFO, for example, you know, you go to shows. I mean, what, what is the rep? What do you do for that, that job? Well, I'm, as you may gather, I like dealing with the public. I mean, I, 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 you love the shows. I love the shows. I like being in touch with anglers. That's again, getting back to the trips I donated this past week. I like working with anglers and sharing ideas. Maybe we can learn. I learn things from people all the time and I, hopefully they learn some things from me, but the, the work of a, a rep, you know, I'm, um, I guess it's a blessing. I'm an early riser. I was up at five this morning and usually I'm, I'm sitting sometimes in my pajamas, uh, you know, working away on, uh, you know, looking at data, trying to figure out, you know, what's selling, what's not. Uh, I'm, I'm analyzing some sales data today to, to uh, kind of get ready to go out on the road. We get very busy in the fall, which is it's tough for all of us to take, especially out here in the Northwest and a lot of other areas. You know, our, to me, my favorite time to fish is in the fall. And that's also my busiest time. Uh, why is it busy? Why is that such a busy time? It's a busy time because the industry has oriented itself either incorrectly or um, I have some issues with it. Uh, yeah. we, we've really gone to a system where, and some of it's out of necessity. If you don't place an order in the fall for next year, 2024, you're not going to get product. Oh, wow. Because of, and that's partly because of uh, COVID or just the industry? Uh, just let's take the fly industry. We are just coming off our slowest time of the year, which is the summer at the factory level in Northern Thailand. And now we're getting, we'll be cooking soon. And that's when the tying is done for next year's um, retailers. And the, and this is a bit of my rant. Um, what's happened is that the industry has gotten used to, for somewhat due to production demands, but I think some of it's a, a creation too, where we try to get dealers to commit to a certain amount of product in the fall before the end of the year, where no other impolite way to say this, uh, we can get our orders to the factory and get our distribution change in order to get uh, orders filled for the following um, year. And what, you know, the Northwest is a bit of an exception because we have a year round fishery, but you got to remember nationally, a lot of, uh, and our biggest market nationally is still trout, fly fishing is still trout. It's a seasonal, you know, so we have to gear um, manufacturing to that seasonal fluctuation. Here's the problem though, and I think some dealers, and I know all the retailers, if they listen to this, will agree. I think some of the uh, company's practices have been predatory. In other words, what they do is they try to extract as much working capital from retailers as possible <laughs> so they can fatten their wallets. And, uh, you know, the effect it has at the consumer level, Dave, is that it really restricts the flow of new product. Mm. Now explain that, explain that, Dick, go back to that, what you said. I, I missed that. Okay. If you're a, a specialty retailer and many of them are very small and you only have a hundred thousand dollars to spend or 200,000, you know, for the following year, 
And XYZ company demands a third or fourth of that capital to get access to their product. Oh, right, right. So you got these brands, some brand that comes in and says, hey, you got to spend 50K just to get our product. If you don't spend 50K, you're not getting it. Exactly. And so if you're a secondary brand, and let's call them that, or another brand, trying to get in there is very, very difficult. And uh, certain manufacturers have have strategically used that. And, uh, you know, that's why when I was talking with Jeff and your father, I said, listen, I managed this. I came from 25 plus years in the commercial insurance business. And I said, listen, I'm always analyzing risk and saying, what's the downside if this doesn't sell? You're going to be uh, left with stale inventory that you're going to have to discount. And that's going to cut into your profits. And it's also going to tie up your cash. Right. That's because with the rods and a lot of the gear, there's new gear coming out the next year. So you have you have the old stuff you got to get rid of. Yeah. And some manufacturers uh, have been really, I think, bad about introducing new model after new model after new model too much. And, you know, and consumers are wise to that. In fact, what they do, uh, and this is really replete in apparel, I think, smart consumers go, I'll just wait. I'll buy last year's uh, apparel because I know it's going to be on a 30 or 40% discount. Right, right, right. Gosh. Okay. So, so a TFO basically, you know, they say, Hey, you do what you need to do to like get our product into out there in shops. Is that, and you, is it pretty open on your, as a rep to do whatever, create your, your plans for where you're going? I mean, you've got this region. We'll talk about that. Your region is the like kind of Western, right? Well, how far does that go for TFO? Well, it's interesting. For TFO, I just cover Oregon and Washington. My other lines, and I, I'm now the senior rep, <laughs> the only fellow who was there longer than I, and I'm going on 23 or 24 years with TFO, just retired. So um, I kind of crow about that. I go, yeah, I'm the, I'm the senior now. And I, I was there before Lefty was. Uh, and uh, and uh, so, no, I've got those two states, but I also, with some of my other lines, and we'll not get into specifics, I still cover Alaska. I don't travel there because of expense. I manage that telephonically, but I've got uh, the Northern Rockies, Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming for some of my lines. And I recently laid claims. Oh, I did make a mistake. A TFO recently agreed and kind of asked me to take over Minnesota and Wisconsin. And uh, so I travel out there a couple times a year for some of my lines. And of course, having lived out there for 10 years, uh, I know that market well. And um, I've got to confess too, I have a certain love of the Driftless area. Yeah, the Driftless, uh, right. By the way, have you um, had any interest in uh, in scheduling trips to that area? Yeah, well, in fact, I had um, a Jerry Meyer on uh, recently, and uh, or a while, and she talked about the Driftless, the Driftless Angler Fly Shop, and I was thinking about setting up a trip there, like the same thing, creating some one of our schools, and I thought maybe they would be a great a place to work with on it, right? Well, Jason Randall. Oh, Jason too. Yeah, Jason too. Jason is running uh, schools there along with Mac Brown of the you know East Coast, and uh, they've partnered together. And Jason does some of, of his own. In fact, I uh, you know I don't have any financial interest in it at all, but I've been trying to do what I can to promote getting people into some adjacent school because Jason is a wonderful instructor and that area of the country is, it's just fabulous. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I could go on and on and on. If you take a trip back there, 
uh, especially during prime time, which is, uh, you know, I like the fall and then I like the early season because those, uh, the driftless area, like everywhere else, can get very, very hot during the summer. Oh, yeah. So right now, August, it's boil- It's hot there. It's hot. It's hot. But, you know, I mean, then you're fishing terrestrials and, uh, but, you know, they have uh, real good trico action in the summer, especially the late summer. But uh, I'll be heading out there in September, October. Okay, September, October. Yeah, so, and that's it pretty much with your repping uh, jaw. I mean, you just go around and basically get the product out there, talk about the product. It's kind of a, it sounds like a pretty amazing job, right? I mean, you're just basically going, you get a fish. What are the downsides of being a rep? Well, you don't get to fish as much as people think, at least I, I'm not, because I, it seems I'm always working on a project or doing this and that. But uh, the fun thing, and you hit upon it, I like to tinker a lot with product. And, you know, I mean, Let's take an example here. Uh, the best one is Rainey's is one of the premium fly companies in the world. Yeah. I will confess to anyone, I am not a saltwater, I'm not a tropical fisherman. So I have to rely on other people to tell me what is selling in the tropics. However, uh, I have experience in most other freshwater fishing. And so Rainey's, for instance, has been extremely good about supplying me with flies. I said, listen, if I'm going to sell these patterns, you know, I'm going to have to fish them and develop some confidence and knowledge of uh, do they fish better on sink tip or do they finish on a floating line? Uh, the other fun part of my job, and I'll give a shout out for Bob Newman. Bob is one of the finest commercial tires and, you know, tires that I've ever met. And I met him in Albany, actually in Eugene. We go back that far, and I finally convinced Bob to develop some patterns for us, and he's developed this uh, leech pattern, and there's one color for me so far, and and Bob laughs about it. I said, Bob, I haven't figured out why, but it's this one color that I can fish your other colors back to back, and it's this one color that they will prefer two to one, and and he laughs about it too, but... Uh, I bring up that example because that's the fun part of this business. If you're diligent, you're taking out new equipment, you're taking out new flies, you're testing them, you're getting them into people. I'm shipping rods all the time out to my, I work with uh, three guys as my TFO ambassadors and uh, two of them are uh, Washington State and one of them's here in Oregon. In fact, actually, I forgot another one and she was on your show who helps me out a lot and that's Mary Jo uh, or Sarah Jo. Oh, Sarah Jo. Yeah, yeah. Sarah Jo Royalty. Yeah, she's very loyal to TFO and Daiichi. She's one of our Daiichi tires. Yeah. And that's probably the most fun part of the job when I think about it is working with other people in the industry or other serious anglers and going, hey, have you ever tried this? And uh, it's always fun. A uh, quick story. I've got a, a guy I've worked, I've known for years, calls me up a few months ago and he goes, you know, Dick, there's these fly boxes I really like and they have foam and this is, yeah. <laughs> and I go, you mean Miho? And he goes, yeah, how'd you know? <laughs> and I go, I go, I'm the distributor for that line of product and I've used those boxes personally for years and I can't get anyone else to buy very many of them. Oh, right. And, and that's what's so funny. You go, 
you know, you go into dealers and say, listen, you'll love these boxes. I love them, but it always doesn't translate into sales, which goes back to what we were talking about before. You buy things for different reasons. And fly boxes aren't the uh, aren't the highest priority for a retailer. No, there's a lot of fly boxes. Yeah, out there, there's all sorts of different types. Um, what is this on the shows? Let's grab that really quick. Then we'll start to head out of here. On uh, do you do a lot of shows? I know you do some of the shows around Oregon and stuff. Do you do shows all over the country? And, and do you have a favorite show you do every year? Yeah, I try to do as many shows as I can. In fact, I go back. Uh, I went back this March to Great Waters in Minneapolis. That is one of the in my opinions, nicest shows hmm. uh, of all time. I've done the uh, fly shows. I've actually gone out to Denver. I want to go back to uh, Edison sometime. I haven't done Edison yet, but I try to go to as many shows as I possibly can. Albany is is really one of my favorite because again, this is my home territory. I wish we had another major show. I guess the fly fishing show is coming back to Main Bower Center, Seattle area next year. But I would like to see, I used to do Ellensburg for the Washington Council. So I, I really try to go to every possible show I can. Uh, I think it's a part of the responsibility of a rep to do that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And they expect to see you out there and, and we always love to see, see you. And it'll be fun this year to, you know, connect with you again, heading out there. Uh, well, let's see here. I guess, I mean, we've, we've touched on quite a bit. Um, anything else you want to shed light on? I mean, we've, we've told some good stories. We've kind of taken it. Anything else we're missing here on what you do from a, a rep position or just anything in general around fly fishing? No, no, it's just, uh, you know, it's, uh, there is one thing we all need to keep in mind and I'll go back to our dear, friend uh, rick pope and uh you know let's admit it everyone whines once in a while and i'm i'm as guilty as anyone and i was probably complaining to rick about well you know it's hard to get these guys to embrace a uh, tfo they're already stacked up with uh, sage loomis winston yada 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 and i said you know and uh sometimes i said that and this is the hardest thing for me to deal with and it is for everyone in every pursuit in life is people with an attitude. It mm -hmm. really is who just are very snotty or elitist and fly fishers have got a reputation. I know a lot of conventional anglers and some of them do not like fly guys. That's what they call them. And I, so I was, I was complaining to Rick once about that whole chemistry and he looked at me and he goes, well, Dick, we're not curing cancer here, are we? No, nope. <laughs> no, we're not. And, and that's that's good to remember. He said, "You got to remind those guys, those elitists, that we're not curing cancer here." No, and I think the cool thing is we've talked about this quite a bit, but yeah, I mean, I think that's changing. The old white guy that's you know the yep. elitist is going, yep. you know, slowly going away. You know, as the younger generation come up and. I think that's a good thing, you know, because I think that the more diverse, again, back to diversity, the more diverse, just like a, just like on a stream, the more diverse the population, the more diverse the people, I think the healthier it is. It is. And the, the other thing that's funny about it is that people complain, myself included at times about, boy, the streams are getting crowded or the river lakes are. And I turn to them and I go, yep. I'm part of the problem, right. not the solution. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you're out there. You're, you got to point the figure at yourself a little bit. This is good. Yeah. Well, give us one. I always love to get a little bit of uh, music 
background and put in the show notes to take us out of here. Are you, I know you're not a big podcast uh, listener, I don't think, but do you, do you listen to music? Do you have any groups, songs, anything you want to give a highlight here? Well, I'll tell you a couple things that are reflective of my personality. Now, if I'm traveling down the road, I listen to a lot of uh, podcasts, mostly uh, NPR. Oh, yeah. I, I'm big on keeping current with the news and so on. But if I'm really down a road, I'll probably put on, like in Wyoming or somewhere, I'll probably put on uh, classic rock or something. But if I'm feeling really uh, uh, contemplative, I'll put on uh, the long and winding road. Oh, Beatles. <laughs> by, by, by Paul McCartney. Uh, oh, oh, so was that Paul McCartney or was that the Beatles? I think Paul wrote the song. I think. I don't think it's Lennon's song, but uh, well, he sings it and uh, Paul sings it. But here, here's the one I, I was dying to tell you about. That is, I really like uh, the Talking Heads. Oh, you know, Talking really Heads. Like, yeah. I really like the line out of Psycho Killer. Psycho Killer. Okay. Now you got to listen to it. I will. I saw the Talking Head Psycho Killer. Yeah. Here's my favorite line, reflective of me. Don't touch me. I'm a real live wire. <laughs> nice. I like that. Don't touch me. I'm a little, all right. Well, I'm going to listen to that. We're going to put that in the show notes. We'll maybe even throw that on, on Instagram if we can, but we'll, we'll get that. And maybe even, uh, I'm a big Beatles fan as well. So I think we might have to throw in the long, in the winding road as well. Yeah. That, that's kind of when you're going down the highway and Wyoming and thinking, where in the world is this taking me? <laughs> yeah, I love that. Well, that's that's where you want to be. You want to be in that place where you're kind of there's you, you don't have cell phone coverage. You're just in the middle of nowhere, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. All right, Dick. We'll uh, obviously we'll put links to all the brands that you're working with there, and we'll uh, throw your email out there if anybody wants to connect with you. And uh, yeah, we'll be in touch. Um, moving ahead, what, what's your if you just look out, say this year. Um, anything uh, new coming for you, you know, as like, as you go into towards the fall, just getting ready for the, the season and working with people? No. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of preparation. And when you look at my travel schedule, I got to cover Oregon, Washington, Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, God, Wisconsin, huge. Wisconsin, and Minnesota. Wow. I'm really kind of sweating right now. And they're going, how am I going to fit all this in? Cause I got to jump on a plane. I've actually, to go out to the uh, upper Midwest, I've actually thought about driving out there, you know, and I thought, eh, that'll give me a lot of long time to think. And I always laugh about this. I go, yeah, if you ever want to let your mind go awry, drive through North Dakota. <laughs> right. Yeah. North Dakota. That's what I definitely, I'm looking forward to that. I haven't done that yet, but I, I'm definitely looking forward to that. I like the road trip. So, so this is good, Dick. Well, thanks again for all your time today. We'll be in touch and I uh, will look forward to seeing you probably at the next show and uh, yeah, have a great uh, season. Yeah. And do say hi to your dad and uh, yeah, just tell him, Oh, uh, I have so many happy memories of being in the shop there. I will. I will. Thanks Dick. Okay. Bye-bye. That is a wrap. You can grab all of the show notes at wetflyswing.com. And please follow us on Instagram and share this episode out with someone you love. Please send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com, if you have any feedback or want us to put together an episode on this podcast for you. Check in anytime. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and would love to meet up with you on the water. We have new fly fishing schools going all year long and all around the country. So if you want to connect, let's do it right now. 
All right, time to get out of here. I hope you have a great evening. I hope you have a great morning or great afternoon wherever in the world you are. And I appreciate you for stopping by and checking out the show today. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.